Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. There's that old saying, do what you love and love what you do. And when Tim Pierce moved to L.A. from Arizona, he hoped to make a living as a professional musician, not knowing the path that laid ahead. It took a decade of hard work, but he eventually became one of the town's most in-demand rock guitarists, playing on records of a wide range of superstars, including Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Joe Cocker, and Bob Dylan, among countless others. Tim is now enjoying a simpler life as a YouTube creator, sharing his knowledge with anyone interested in learning how to play guitar at every level. One of the things I like about my life now is that I only do the sessions sessions that I want to do because my web business, my subscription, has gotten so successful. I do sessions for friends for free. I do sessions for people like that Bob Dylan thing if it's a special event or whatever. It's a job I don't do anymore unless I want to and unless the circumstances are more on my terms. There's another old cliche, it's a small world, and that's what I found out when I signed up for Tim's online guitar course. It turned out that Tim played on many of the records I promoted in my time at Warner Music. So I reached out to him to say that, and we ended up connecting on the phone. Over the course of that first conversation, we realized that back in the early 80s when I started my career working for manager Bill O'Coin in New York, Tim had come to our Christmas party at the O'Coin offices at the invitation of John Waite, who happened to be an O'Coin client at the time. See? Small world. In this episode, Tim and I talk about how he turned his passion for guitar into a lifelong career. Because this is a podcast about creativity, I do want to get into your life as a guitarist, your life as a session person. I do want to get into a lot of the different projects that you've worked on. But I am curious to start with what you as a guitarist have brought, if you can give me some examples of some of the things that we may have heard out there in the airwaves that you've brought to sessions that maybe weren't there when you walked in? Well, probably the, 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 to me, the most, the thing I'm most proud of probably is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. And you, you, if you don't know that song, just Google it, I-R-I-S, and listen to two seconds of it and you'll go, oh, that. I mean, it, the Goo Goo Dolls, I mean, you talk about a name that they regretted having, you know, it's like those guys, they're, you know, they're great guys. And that song was like, it was on the radio, like more than any other song for an entire year. And I played all of these mandolin fills on it. And then I did a solo in the middle. And the only reason I did a solo, I've told this story before. I didn't want to show up at the session with a little case with a mandolin and because that's all they wanted. And I thought, no way, man, I'm going to bring all my gear. I'm going to horn my way in as a rock guitar player on this song. And I found out later they were mad at me for bringing a truckload of gear. But it, I, I had it set up and Rob Cavallo, who I had never met before, he said, oh, well, well there is this section here. We could try something. And I did a slide solo because I insisted on on bringing a truckload of gear and then I found out later they were mad at me for doing that originally but that's that's the probably the you know if I had to look at the most beautiful song I've ever played on that might be it then the other one is uh, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House that's that's the other one uh, those two probably are the the, the the songs I'm most proud of that people definitely have heard right so not a lot of people would know that you are the guitar player on Runaway by Bon Jovi, which basically got him his record deal. 
Can you share well, the story? It was, it was part of what got him his record deal. He did some demos. I was doing a John White record at the power station with Neil Giraldo, which was a wonderful experience. And, and Bon Jovi, John, was living upstairs, and we became friends. And he uh, he put together, Tony, his cousin, funded a uh, you know demo master session, which is what you did back then. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. You know that. So it was expensive even to record demos. So he had Roy Bitten from the E Street Band, Aldo Nova, Frankie LaRocca, the bass player from the E Street Band. His name escapes me right now. We did six or seven songs. And one of them ended up being the first single uh, on his first record. And we all got full credit for it, which was a you know, tribute to... He didn't try to... you know We were called the Something or Other Band, and all our names were on the first record. So it was cool. For people that don't know you... I'd like to go back to where is where is did you grow up? Okay, so I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1958 and pretty wonderful place to dream about music. Uh I fell in love with AM radio probably by the by at, at age 3, I probably fell in love with AM radio 3 to 5 and my love of music comes 100% from listening to songs on the AM radio, the top 40. Guitar, the love of guitar came later, but it's really the love of songs. And because I was small at age 12, I couldn't continue being an athlete. That's when you kind of realize that you're not going to make any teams and you're not going to do that. I've talked to other, a couple of, of other musicians about that. If you're small and not the strongest person, you can't keep doing athletics. You, you know, I ended up doing music because I loved it. So at age 12, I started playing. I became obsessed with it. Uh, at age 21, I moved to L.A. I had a certain amount of skill. I could play lead guitar because I was obsessed with it, but I was not a very good rhythm guitar player. But in 1980, L.A. was actually a welcoming, nurturing, wide-open place for anybody to come and be a musician. I didn't think so at the time. When I first moved here, I was actually so intimidated I would wake up sick to my stomach every morning. But looking back, uh, it was a hundred times more welcoming, nurturing for any any kind of musician trying to, you know, get a foothold. It was wonderful. So I moved here and started working immediately, doing little gigs. And it took me a decade to get the skills together to be a functioning, reliable studio musician, because it's a very high level of stuff you have to do, and your consistency has to be, you know, 110% all the time. But I still did some big projects in the 80s, some big tours, you know, I was, you know, Rick Springfield's guitar player, did five records with him, four world tours, I did the Bon Jovi record, I did the John Waite record, I did Kenny Loggins record, some other records too, and Crowded House in the late 80s. But my consistency as a session musician didn't really uh, coagulate or crystallize until about 1990, and that's when I started working every day on records. And who were you listening to when you were first learning how to play guitar? Like I said, the Top 40 radio in the 60s, uh, but in the late 60s, you know, the arrival of Hendrix, Clapton, Johnny Winter, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, every guitar player that was on every song in every band on the radio and mm -hmm. selling records. When you moved to L.A. in the early 80s, how did you get... Uh, involved in the scene? Or did, were you involved in the scene? Well, the thing is, the, the, what I was trying to mention is that it was so easy. I moved here at the end of 1979. I knew a roadie who worked for a band. He introduced me to a guitar player who was leaving a gig. I took that guy's slot so that he could exit gracefully. You meet one musician, 
they introduce you to another one. You meet another one, they introduce you to another one. That one introduces you to three more. So it literally is a tree that goes out like this. Uh, there were $30 rehearsals and $50 gigs, if you were good enough to kind of join in. Um, there were demo sessions all the time. You know, $30 or $50 is generally what a session paid at that, that level or whatever. And at a certain point, I realized I had $700 in the bank, and I could even buy gear and keep my, my, my checking account at $700, and I knew I was actually getting by. Everything was really inexpensive, even though people were complaining probably about how expensive it was at that moment in 1980. Um, I shared a house with three people uh, that was $700 a month, so my, nut on the, my, my rent was $233 a month. And uh, I... It was literally, you meet one musician, they introduce you to another one. It's literally a tree. It's, you know, it, it just people were playing and recording and gigging and doing stuff everywhere. What kind of music were you playing with these folks? Well, the, 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 the kind of music that was popular when I moved here was New Wave and then hard rock in the vein of uh, Van Halen you know, Warrant, Quiet Riot, yeah, you know, Quiet Riot, exactly. So you got it, you got it. Yeah. Uh, so there were the, there were those two elements, and then there was the amazing R and B that practitioners of Stevie Wonder and and those people. I mean, I'm talking about everything under the sun, and then you know, new wave became bigger and bigger and bigger, and I could do, I could do I was perfect for that, perfect. Uh, pop, new wave, pop rock, rock. I couldn't really be in the Van Halen thing because I didn't have the image. At that point in time, if you didn't look a certain way, you actually couldn't play a certain kind of music. You couldn't be in a rock star rock band if you didn't look like a rock star, and I never did. So, But I also couldn't play like Van Halen. And the benefit to that was when Kurt Cobain and Nirvana completely wiped thousands of careers off the table in 1993 with that changing of the guard... I was the guy who could play like the band guy. So my career actually went up in 1993 when Nirvana showed up and ended the careers of hundreds, not thousands of uh, music professionals. You do have the good fortune to have made a life and made a living out of doing what you love, you know, which is both a hobby and a lifestyle. And what's your question? What's it like? What, I mean, no, 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 and I don't, I don't, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a little bit too late. It, it's, uh, that's all I needed. That's all I needed. Um, so I started this because I was an unhappy teenager, and I had a, a home life that was kind of, you know, appeared to be very, you know, stable, but it was kind of a crazy family. So I had a kind of a crazy family, and I was unhappy, and I poured myself into music, and that saved me. This is a, That's a typical story, by the way. There's no, nothing unusual about that. And so I was driven to try and make it in the world with my guitar. And when I came out here, there were musicians everywhere at every level in the music business that were... I remember a friend of mine, John Perdell, who... He's a songwriter, producer, keyboard player, and I remember going to his house to, you know, pick up a cassette or something, and pulling up to this giant ranch home with horses in the back and uh, a Porsche in the driveway, and he was just a working guy in the industry, you know, and I, I went, oh, people can actually 
have lives. Not that I needed any of those things, but just being able to live in a house and keep a refrigerator full of food and pay your insurance bills and have a normal life in music, that's what I saw when I first came here. So that that really, really was wonderful to me. I just wanted to be a working musician. Now, the opportunities were really, really great. Um, and I fought hard to try and get my skill level up for like the entire decade of the 80s. And my thing was just dogged persistence. I would just show up over and over and over every day, inefficiently working as hard as I could to do the best I could. And frankly, I was underqualified compared to most of the musicians I was working with, even from the beginning, because L.A., uh, the competition is not national, it's not regional, it's not local, it's international. So the best keyboard player from Paris moves here, and the best composer from London moves here, and the best guitar player from wherever moves here. Now that's changed a little bit. I would say Nashville has wears that crown now. But So when you're in an environment like that and you realize, oh, I really didn't learn how to play the guitar. Oh, I really didn't learn to read music. Oh, I really can't play jazz. When you sit next to Steve Lukather and he actually channels his Larry Carlton licks just like that, and you go, oh, I can't do that. You realize that, you know, there's a lot of ego that happens when you grow up in a smaller place, and you hear and you see people making records, and you go, oh, I could do that. You don't realize that that's just the tip of the iceberg. So it, it's, it was great to be here and learn all that. Now, what, what came along with that is pressure. So one of the things I like about my life now is that I only do the sessions sessions that I want to do because my web business, my subscription has gotten so successful. I do sessions for friends for free. I do sessions for people like that Bob Dylan thing if it's a special event or whatever. It's a job I don't do anymore unless I want to and unless the circumstances are more on my terms. So when you say what was it like, it was an enormous amount of pressure and fatigue when I finished. It's an unnatural level of work when you have to actually be on every single minute. And that's what the job is. As a studio musician, you have to be on every single minute. There are very few jobs like that, maybe surgeons. I mean, in our particular case, you're not saving a life. Life is not, your life is not on the line. But you literally have to be working above the, uh, above your... Uh, natural state 100% of the time. And when you get busy, you're doing that eight, nine, 10 hours a day. You're doing it seven days a week, which for me became my reality. So you're literally dealing with pressure, fatigue, and burnout 100% of the time. So when you say, what's it like? There is a, that is the biggest, was the biggest challenge, my biggest complaint. I found ways to actually mitigate that and, you know, uh, ways to escape it before and after the session work and I, I would I would be very specific at a certain point about how many hours somebody could work me if I gave them a day rate so it's it was an unnatural level of pressure and and output for you know 30 of the 40 years that I was busy every day doing sessions right I mean the, when I when I ask what it's like it really comes down to you know hopefully many of us have have dreams of oh if, if i could give up the you know this other day-to-day -day stuff and i could focus on this one thing that i love and maybe i'll make something of it maybe i won't but it wouldn't it be great if 
I could spend my life as a painter or I could spend my life as a gardener or whatever, there does come a reality where, okay, that means you have to make a living doing this thing that you love, which means now that there is going to be pressure doing the thing that you love in order to make that living. So I'm going to do something here that I that I really shouldn't do. If I was if I was a professional enough at do at being an interviewer, I wouldn't ask you a double you know two questions in one question. But I am going to ask you to. So obviously, I'm presuming that with that pressure, that pushes you to become better at your craft quicker. You know, and the second part of that is. Can you think of times where you're sitting in a session beside another guitar player like a Lukather who is pushing you and you realize they are making you a better guitar player because you're seeing them up close doing things that you didn't think you could do? You've, you've actually gone right to what was the best thing about that era is that, I mean, Dan Huff was a perfect example of those, you know, if, if people know who he is, um, I would sit next to him and watch him conjure up ideas and parts kind of in the same way Dylan conjured up lyrics and sounds and parts. And you go, Oh, that's why he's the guy that they call first. How the heck does he, you know, and it's, it was his upbringing, his talent, his dad, it was a fabulous musician. You know, it's, it's just, and his ambition, his work ethic, his drive, all this stuff, you know, but Absolutely. And there were so many more. I have a friend named James Hera, who I would sit next to, who was amazing. Uh, I would sit next to a guy named Michael Thompson, who's amazing. Michael Landau was amazing. All these guys. And then, you know, the famous drummers that I would work with, Jeff Ricaro, for so many sessions with Jeff Ricaro. So absolutely, yes. It's In my particular case, it was hard not to feel really grossly inadequate most of the time because I was just a guy who, you know, who tried really hard, played from the heart and knew three or four chords. And then I had to rise to this level to do all this other stuff. So it was great for me to reach. But I was like, as I said, I was dealing with the best musicians in the world. And then, you know, the best, the best guy, I did a uh, Rob Thomas record in the early 2000s and Tom Bukovac came from Nashville and I saw it again. There's that gift. The guy who can literally just come up with um, magic uh, ev- on every single song, and different. I mean, it was, and I was elated. You know, it 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 was like life changing when I did that record with Rob Thomas and Tom Bukovac, because I thought, oh, gosh, if I could work with Tom every day, think how good I would be. <laughs> Uh, and now I don't care about being that good. I don't, I, it, I, I actually, one of the podcasts I listened to had the, um, I'll think of his name, the guy who wrote Michael Clayton, the director, um, and his name escapes me right now. It'll probably come to me in five minutes, but he was a, a really, really highly paid screenwriter and he became a, a filmmaker and, and in order to actually become a director and make movies himself, he had to give up this high-level skill, high-paying skill. And he said something really, really amazing to me. You have to give up virtuosity. You have to give it up. 
And so when I see, this is another subject, but when I see guitar players all over Instagram and people showing how fast they play and, 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 and gifted musicians just showing all this stuff, I go, where's the song? The guys that I loved gave up the virtuosity so that they could, you know, write great songs. So to me, it's a different goal uh, music, the music I love is, you know, the music I love, the thing I love most is songs. And honestly, when I see a guitar player that starts to play fast and show off, I, I start looking at my iPhone or I just turn it off and look, look at something else. The reason that I first got in touch with you to, um, take your masterclass course was because of all the people. I mean, I shouldn't say of all the people, because there's a few really great guys out there and women out there that are doing courses, but I really appreciated how melodically you played. I'm a big fan of, um, of Mike Campbell, you know, who doesn't, you know, who doesn't go crazy. You know, it's like you play, you know, it's nice when the guitar play, you know, the guitar solos are a part of the song. It's nice when, you know, especially with Campbell in particular, that his it always feels like his soloing comes straight out of Tom Petty's uh, melodies. When I'm talking about sitting next to those great guitar players in sessions, they're not doing the offensive thing that I was just explaining. They are actually coming, they're orchestrating, they're coming up with beautiful, simple parts, one after the other. So they're doing what, you know, they're doing what they should, which is make the song amazing with a simple part and another simple part and another simple part. And so that's, that always blew me away. I mean, that was the great thing about session musicians is that they, they had those chops but they would sub sublimate, subjugate, is that the word? They would put it all, just throw it all away in, in search of a simple, beautiful moment or part in the song. And so, the, you know, that kept me endlessly interested in that craft. Uh, uh, so, but these days, I actually am more of an observer, because if I have friends who are doing a session, I don't actually want to do that work anymore. I would be happy just listening to work, the work they do and enjoying it. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's like I'm back to when I was six years old and I hear the thing and I'm just amazed by it. I don't want to be there making – I don't need to be there and make that thing anymore. I, I think that people that uh, are trying – the people that want to try and pursue creativity and are intimidated by people that are better than them don't – or better than them, further along than they are – often, rather than being intimidated, need to understand, I believe, that those people that might be ahead of them have great generosity in their own gifts and are ready to share. So don't be afraid. It's very true. I, I talk to Rick Beato uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. I won't even tell you how much we talk uh, on the phone. He lives in Atlanta. And He's helped me so much with my my web business and my new career. And this is a person who he does everything better than the rest of us <laughs> all the time. 
And I'm not, not only am I not intimidated about it, I doesn't, he's a better, he's, he's a dazzling guitar player. It's like 500,000 followers on Instagram. He's the most popular guitar player. He's a guitarist, guitarist, a guitarist. And it doesn't, it doesn't phase me at all. So I think what you're talking about, it, you know, it took me 63 years to get to this point, but we're friends and I don't care about his virtuosity. I literally don't care. I enjoy it. I love it. I'm happy for him. Uh, and I've told him that pretty much. So it's exactly what you're talking about. It's just a case in point for, you know, a, a new, you know, and this is, you know, we're in a different business, he and I, at this point, but it's exactly what you're talking about. You should really just take what you can from people and use a little bit of it and make your own thing. I mean, it's... Let's think of somebody incredibly simple who we love. And who's better? The, you know, the brilliant genius or the the person who writes the soulful, simple song? You, you see what I'm saying? It's like... I just, I you know, I'm thinking about the people that I know um, who, over the course of the two years of COVID, started taking painting classes and, and realized, you know, that they know how to paint, that, they, that they've been able to learn how to create. There's a woman who I did an interview with um, a couple months ago who, over the course of COVID, wrote her first book, never having planned to be a, an author, you know? And I think that that's the thing. It's like taking, taking that step off of the edge and not, you know, maybe you're afraid, but being brave enough to go off the edge and... In thinking, I'm going to figure out how to not break my neck at the bottom of this fall. And I think that, you know, part of part of what you have been able to accomplish with your career as a as a uh, professional musician was coming to L.A. and jumping into a very deep pool and learning how to swim. Absolutely. Uh and it goes back to what I talked about when you're living in a small town or a medium-sized town or even a large town somewhere and you're not in the music industry and you see something or hear something, you go, I could do that. Well, not really. <laughs> and and uh, th that's one of the greatest things about it is you come and you realize, oh, I'm meeting guitar players every day who can do what I do and do it better. It really is... A big panel. And, and, you know, even in here back then, it was like you, you'd show up somewhere. I mean, I remember driving down the 101 into Hollywood to go do my demo or whatever. And Eddie Van Halen was driving past me in his Jeep with, you know, four guitar cases in the open air in the back of his open Jeep, you know, on the way to do his second record or whatever. You know, you're around that when you're here, you know, uh, or you're in a rehearsal room and, you know, you know. When you're when you put yourself in those situations, you automatically rise. But the better thing is your ego automatically gets obliterated, so that you you have a chance to learn. Because if in my particular case, my ego prevents me from learning, uh, and that's just me. So I, I when my ego gets you know chopped to pieces, I that's when I am more open to learning. Well, I mean, there's two there's two things to chew on there. One is shut up and learn, and the other thing is. Well, you're not going to learn anything if you don't make mistakes. <laughs> oh, gosh. 
the, the new business that we have, all we do is make mistakes. So the, you know, the thing about the session business is that you're basically, your job is to get it done really quickly without mistakes. So you have to develop this. That's, you know, you, you do whatever you can to, to minimize the mistakes or, you know, fix them quickly. But the, the, the web business that I'm in, we just make, we just fall down constantly. We just make, I make a bad film and I try and save it and make it better. You know, we send out some sort of email campaign and we use the wrong words and send it to the wrong people and we do it better next time. It's just endless. It's really true. I mean, um, it's recovery from mistakes is not part of it. It's like all of it. (laughs) It's, it's the whole thing. It's recovery from, you know, face planning. When did you, when did you start, um, your YouTube channel? I think I started it in 2012. Hmm. Uh, but I, I always forget that I monetized, I started this endeavor 10 years ago and I probably started the YouTube, what does that sound? Maybe 2014. Anyway, I monetized about eight years ago and, um, Short answer, it's been about a decade. Uh, this endeavor has been about a decade of really sustained day-by-day uh, day effort. In addition to doing sessions, but now I've removed most of the sessions. So mm. I can just do this. And how do you find that process of being an online instructor? Uh, I have learned how to do it better than when I originally started. Uh, I've just started a beginner category. Mm-hmm. And after 10 years of being an online teacher with a camera in front of me I can finally be a beginning beginner teacher uh, couldn't have done it this well two years ago but now I'm able to do beginner videos well mm-hmm. and so we've just added I think I'm almost to a hundred beginner videos in the beginner category and I'll just keep adding to them because I can do them really quickly and, and effortlessly um, could not have done that two years ago certainly couldn't have done it five years ago so I've gotten better at at flow in front of the camera when I first started I was terrible at it you know I spent a couple of years being awful a couple more years being terrible a couple more years being cringeworthy a couple more years being embarrassing and then now I'm only a little bit goofy but to the, you know what to that point though I mean you know you did as you say you struggled it was cringeworthy it was awful and all this other but you still put it out there you still put it out there into the world well, I've learned that in my particular path in life, I learned that if I just choose one thing and do it relentlessly and, like I said, inefficiently and poorly and full of struggle, that eventually just restricting my actions to one purpose will yield results. I never planned it that way, but now I've, I've been able to do it twice now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first time I was, you know, street musician, underschooled, underqualified, found a way to actually be of service to, you know, people making records. I did that for 40 years. And then in that last decade, I started the web business and now I've been able to do this and be of service to people wanting to learn the guitar. But it really is just doing one thing. I'll give you an example. When I was a session musician, everybody was writing songs and that's where real money came from. You you know, you get your session fee, but if the people I was working with 
their lives would change forever from having one song on, you know, the Bodyguard soundtrack or one song on, you know, City of Angels or whatever. You get a, a song on a soundtrack and basically you would be, or I had friends, you know, my, I have a friend that I'm working with right now, Pat Leonard, who wrote 35 Madonna songs. You see this happen, you go, oh, I have to be a songwriter. This is where the game is, you know, and, you know, that equation has changed because songwriters make, you know, five to 10 percent of what they used to make because of streaming. But back, back in those days, one song on a hit soundtrack and your life would change forever. And so just like any other musician from the age of 14 to probably the age of 35, we're talking two decades. Uh, I tried really hard to be a songwriter. I even wrote a couple of songs that earned money. Uh, tried to write lyrics, tried to do whatever I could to be a songwriter. And I finally decided to give it up. And giving up songwriting for me was the best decision I ever made because, back to the point, it was a distraction from the one thing. And the one thing that I was actually successful at was Session Man on records. So when I gave up songwriting, my life improved, my guitar playing improved, my career improved, my finances improved, everything went. And part of it was... Sure. I was working with Pat Leonard and he, you know, I remember one day he got a check for $2 million just for 10%. Warners in Europe wanted to administer his publishing for 10%. And they gave him a $2 million advance. And we all went out to dinner that night and he was just laughing. And so it's natural to say, well, why can't I do that? Well, the reason I couldn't do it is because I was working with the people who were the best at it. And I wasn't, I just didn't have that skill or that ability. He did, you know? So once you realize that, Oh, I am, you know, I can be of service to Pat Leonard, but I can't be Pat Leonard. It might've been a million, uh, uh, but it was, it was not less than a million. I forget the, it was like here, you know, make this deal with us. We'll make you an offer. You can't refuse. And it was, it was he didn't refuse it. <laughs> You can find hundreds of Tim's entertaining and informative videos by searching him out on YouTube. You can also sign up at timpierce.com for a free two-week trial of his online masterclass series that includes close to a thousand videos for guitarists of every level, including beginners. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If it's your first time, please check out the library for previous episodes. I'm sure that you'll find something that you like. Also, you might want to subscribe to receive future episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're so inclined, please rate and review the episode. It helps us find new listeners this way. And don't forget to share the pod with your friends. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Mm-hmm.